0: Well, that is a great joy uh, for sure. It stirs up in our own hearts, uh, our own gratitude for what the Lord does for sinners like all of us. Well, if you remember how to find the book of Revelation, you can turn to that again. It's been uh, several Wednesday nights since we have been in the study of the uh, final book of the New Testament, the Revelation. But we're back in that tonight at chapter 12. I don't know if you know what the longest war is that has existed in human history, but I did some research on that. I looked up the top 50 longest wars. I won't give you the list of all of them, there's, there's too many, but I will tell you the top 50 wars in human history involved people groups like these the Dutch the Polish, Ottomans, Hungarians, the Anglos, the Lithuanians, the Russians, the Spanish, the Persians, the Cossacks, the French, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Portuguese, Navajos, Vikings, the Burmese, Apache, Turks, Filipinos, Arabs, Mexicans, Croatians, Serbs, Bulgarians, and a few others. Now, the length of the various wars involving all those people groups spread from on the fifty top 50 list from the short end of 150 years long wars to 781 years long. Ongoing fighting. Anywhere from 158 to 781 years of ongoing fighting to make the top 50 list. So any one of those top 50 wars could be considered a very long war. But there is a war... That has gone on much longer than any of those, all of them added together, really. It truly is the longest war, and that is the ongoing battle between God and Satan. That is a war that has waged not just for decades or centuries, but even for millennia and longer. It's a battle that began due to pride. And we know what God's view of pride is, right? Just to remind us of that tonight. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17, you know, say the seven things that God hates that are an abomination to him. First one on the list, haughty eyes, pride. Proverbs 16, 18, that familiar verse that gives Counsel to us, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Well, it is Satan's rebellion against God that is the most infamous and far-reaching illustration of the results of that sin, pride. So, let's talk a little bit more about that. Lucifer, that's Satan's... Name when he was a high ranking, exalted angel in heaven, Lucifer. But he became filled with pride. And due to his pride, Lucifer decided to be equal to God, even greater than God, higher than God. And that led eventually to him being cast down from his exalted position in heaven. Now, one reference to that is Isaiah chapter 14, and just a warning, there's about a hundred or so verses that I'll be throwing out tonight, down from my usual, what, 150, I guess. Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 15. "'How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn! You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart,' I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. A lot of times in the Old Testament, some of the prophecies were actually dealing with real people that existed at that time, a king, a leader. And yet what was being manifested, God was having recorded in Scripture as a picture of something else. That's certainly true of what we find in Ezekiel 28, the king of Tyre, a real king, prideful king. He fell, and his pride and fall is presented in Scripture as an illustration of Satan's pride and fall. That's Ezekiel 28. I'll just read two verses, verse 14, verse 17. You were the anointed cherub. You were on the holy mountain of God. That's verse 14. I'll read 16 17. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountains of God. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, your exaltedness. All of that is picturing Lucifer. Lucifer fell from his exalted position. And in the gospel of Luke, Christ comments on that in Luke 10, verse 18, and says that it was like lightning when it happened. Listen to Luke 10, 18, and Jesus said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. A little, you know, firsthand commentary there. And here's the result of that fall. We know the result, that not only did Lucifer forfeit his place as this even potentially the highest created being. But in that act of rebellion, he then became the supreme enemy of God called Satan, a name that means the adversary. But that fall from heaven did not just affect him, losing his exalted position there. His rebellion began a a war throughout the universe. You could even call it a global war. You could call it a cosmic war, really. And it's a war that's still going on. That's why I said it's the longest war. It goes back the farthest, and it's still going on, a war dwarfing any other war in human history. And we know from Scripture that Satan gathered other angels into his rebellion at that time. In fact, there's a verse later in Revelation that gives this hint that one-third of the angels foolishly sided with Lucifer. It was these fallen angels then that became what we know as demons. These demons are Satan's minions not little short yellow thing, people, something different. Satan is their general. He's their evil commander. The demons are the ones that do his bidding. More specifically, under Satan's leadership, they do everything possible to oppose God, to oppose his will, his purposes, They also make war with the remaining holy angels. As well, they make war with and terrorize the human race. So Satan's attempt to usurp God in heaven failed, really. And then God cast him and all his minions out of paradise. So once that happens, Satan and his demons turn their attention then to earth, to the humans that dwell here. We know from the book of Genesis, he started with the very first humans that God created, Adam and Eve. Satan's tactic was to tempt them to also rebel against God like he had. And he lied to them about God, lied to them about what God had told them. As we know, he was successful in that tactic. They sinned, and their sin destroyed the environment that they were in as far as the perfect nature of it, their home in the Garden of Eden. But what's worse, their sin plunged then the entire human race into sin, the depths of depravity from that moment on. Depravity, decay, corruption, sin has been spreading. On a more global level and cosmic level, From that moment on, Satan became the ruler of this world, is what Scripture calls him. At least temporarily, he has functioned that way. You find Jesus saying that, John 12, verse 31. You saw this in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Jesus referred to him as the ruler of this world, will be cast out, defeated. He says again in John 16, verse 11, the ruler of this world will be judged, so, again, just to wrap it all together, the longest war started in heaven. It spilled over, it spread to earth with Adam and Eve listening to Satan's lies and falling to Satan's temptation. That resulted in the whole human race also becoming embroiled in this long standing war. Every tribe involved in this war, every tongue, every nation involved in this long war. Not even the Swiss can claim neutrality in this war, the war that's still going on now. There's going to be some final battles of this war, this long war, Satan against God. And those final battles are still in the future, yet to be fought. They will take place during what is called the seven years of tribulation The seven years that lead up to the coming of Christ, specifically this war and the final battle start becoming more potent in the second half of that seven-year tribulation period, what Jesus called the Great Tribulation, Matthew 24, verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. At that time, Satan, added by the presence of legions of demons, he will be launching his most desperate assaults against God. He will be launching his most desperate assaults against people, even God's people. We have it all recorded in Scripture. We're studying it, the book of Revelation. We also know something else from this book, right? Right? The end of the story, the end of the war. Christ wins. In fact, doesn't just win. Christ is going to easily crush Satan and all of his forces. We're going to see that later in chapter 19 of Revelation. And while we're looking that far ahead, it's exciting to think about chapter 20, because there we're going to find that the Lord is going to send Satan to the abyss for the duration of, of a millennial kingdom. I'll read Revelation 21 and 2 for you. Still all in the future. After chapter 19. Chapter 19 is the second coming chapter I don't know if you ever thought about this, but chapter 20 comes after chapter 19. It's amazing. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Just threw it all in there and bound him for a thousand years. And there's even more. Scripture goes on to say he'll be allowed then to eventually then have a final moment of rebellion at the close of that millennium but will still be defeated, and in that final defeat will be consigned to the eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, I'll read verse 3 and verses 7 through 10. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, after, they'll be released for a short time. Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, to gather them together for the war, this final desperate battle, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So I'm reviewing all this because it gives you a panoramic view of the background of what we find in Revelation chapter 12. That's where we are tonight. Now, because it's been a while since we have studied the book of Revelation, just want to remind you where we are. Uh, so just a, a brief sort of summary slide or two. So let's go back one slide, if that's possible. Or is, is that the first one? I knew that. That's the first one. As you can see there, Revelation divides in the broadest sense into three parts. The vision what you have seen. Those words come from a verse in Revelation. Write down what you've seen. Write down what is now. Write down what will take place later. Okay, that's how the book of Revelation divides. What you've seen, chapter 1. We saw there that the author, the apostle John, saw an incredible vision of Christ. And then after looking at that vision, we studied part 2 there, what is now the messages, the letters that the risen Jesus, this glorified Jesus that John saw in the vision of chapter 1 had for seven churches, actual churches that were in existence in John's day, but churches that represent the churches that have existed all throughout church history, and therefore the messages apply to churches today. Then we come to the future. Chapters, that was chapters 2 and 3, those letters, chapters 4 through the end of the book the future, what will take place later. We've seen some of this already. Uh, The adoration of the glorified Jesus in in heaven, chapters 4 and 5. And we found there that in that next phase of the vision that John was taken up to the throne of heaven to see that. And not only did he see and witness all this adoration going on, but there was a scroll that he noticed with seals on it. And the chant was, who is worthy to open that seal? And it becomes apparent that only Christ, the risen Lord, was the one worthy to open it. And so he takes the seal, the scroll, and he starts to unroll it. What is that scroll? The scroll is the record of God's future judgment, the judgments that are still to come upon the rebellious inhabitants of earth, Jesus began unrolling the scroll. And as each seal of the scroll was opened then, as He did that, John was allowed to witness something to see the judgments that are going to be poured out on the earth. Those judgments will start, what's depicted in the scroll, seven years before Christ returns that seven-year tribulation. And based on the language used, as John wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, what we see happening is sequential in order. The language, the grammar demands that. Plus, they become increasingly more severe. The seventh seal represents the most severe judgments. That seventh seal is broken down even further, for within that seventh seal were seven trumpet judgments, the Bible calls them. And the last trumpet judgment, the most severe of the judgments, is broken down to seven bull judgments, the book of Revelation calls them. All part of phase three of God's judgment upon the earth Some of that's not up there for you. I'm just giving you a general idea. Now, interspersed in here, we've seen that at times the flow of thought pauses, so to speak. It's not so much that it pauses, it might keep going on, but there are some interludes, there are some parentheses where John is describing and talking about something else, even though the judgments are still going on on earth. Once the first trumpet sounded, we did find another one of those interludes, a parenthesis described by John. It's an interlude that lasts for six chapters, chapters 10 all the way through 15. Let me go to the next slide. That takes that future part and breaks it down a little bit more with smaller font, obviously. Judgment on the earth, chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18 before the Lord comes. Judgment phase 1, that was the seal judgments, the first six of them. But then there was one of those interludes we saw, parenthesis, is the way I like to say it, chapter 7. And then judgment picked up back up again, phase 2, with that seventh seal, the most severe judgments. It has those seven trumpet judgments within it and we studied the first six of those. And then comes another parenthesis, chapters 10 through 15. We're in that parenthesis in chapter 12, see? We've seen some of that parenthesis, as you'll remember, chapter 10, the angel and the little book. We studied that. Then chapter 11, the first part of it was the two witnesses. Chapter 11, the second half of it, the seventh trumpet is finally introduced. And that brings us to chapter 12, where we are tonight, So again, we're studying the vision John was allowed to see of God's future wrath being poured out on a rebellious world, leading right up to Jesus' second coming to earth when He returns in power and glory. We are now at Revelation 12, verse 1, which is still in that interlude, you see. There's more to come in the interlude. You can see in chapter 13, we'll look at who the two beasts are, and then chapter 14, uh, the Lamb, the glorified Lamb. 144,000 angels, there's a heavenly scene in chapter 15, and then the effects of these final judgments are going to pick back up again. So you can turn that off, otherwise they won't pay attention to what I'm saying. So we've arrived at Revelation 12, verse 1, still in that long interlude. We're at that fourth item that was in that interlude, the seventh trumpet, the last one has resounded. Look back at chapter 15. Let's just read those a couple of verses again, 15 and 16. So the seventh trumpet, is the, it's, the, it's the final trumpet of the final seal, but this final trumpet is going to break down to some bold judgments that we'll see later. But the seventh trumpet sounds, verse 15 of chapter 11, then the seventh angels sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom, I mean, this stirred up something in heaven. All right, they know what's what's coming now. It's getting down toward the end. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. So we're going to see the effects of this trumpet judgment and all of its bowls, the seven bowl uh, jump bowls, later in chapters 15 through 18. And those bowls are going to become more and more tense because they represent the the judgments that's just right near the end of the tribulation, just before Christ's return in power and glory. No wonder there's joy in heaven there, excitement. They know the end of the story. Christ is going to defeat Satan. It's finally going to happen. Establish his eternal kingdom. And the longest war will be over finally. that'll be the outcome of the war. God wins. It's not in doubt. Christ's ultimate triumph in this age-old world, is war is certain. Just think about that for a moment. We can't say that about any other contest. I mean, you can't say it about any sports contest. You can't say it about any battle, any war right now. We can't say it about the elections. Everything is certain. We can't say for certain how the Russia-Ukraine situation will turn out. We can't say anything certain about the future of our nation day by day. Nothing about the future can we be certain about except this. There is absolutely nothing doubtful about the outcome of the longest war, Satan's war against God. God wins. So until we get to the effects of this final judgments. While we're still in this interlude, and now that we're at the beginning of chapter 12, there is some restatement of some things, there is some repetition of some things, there is taking us back to remember some things we already know, a recapitulation, if we will, if you will, but in this recapitulation, we first see some events, almost as if it's being looked at now, all of this is going on from Satan's side of things. In fact, we will be taken all the way back to what I've already told you about tonight, the original rebellion of Satan. And then in chapter 15, the chronological narrative of the tribulation events then resumes. So again, hate to keep summarizing, but it, it just helps to get the big picture in your head where we are. This future tribulation period will be a time of unprecedented judgments of God's future wrath. And at the same time, the desperation of Satan, the desperate rage of Satan's efforts to stop God from winning, still. Desperate attempts attempts to stop God's purposes from being fulfilled. And as the tribulation comes to an end, the closer it gets to the second coming, the more devastating the period will be. So let's begin Revelation 12 tonight in this comprehensive survey of some background features that help us understand those last three and a half years and the desperation of Satan and so forth. The Apostle John now introduces some main characters to us that are important. He has to pause in his writing. He has to be in this interlude to set the stage for several things we've already seen in the interlude, but also for this to tell us about these three characters, a woman, a dragon, and a male child. Now, as we will see, the woman symbolizes something. So does the dragon. So does the male child. The woman represents Israel. Go ahead and play the cards here for you. The dragon represents Satan. Any guesses who the male child refers to? Jesus. These are key characters. So let's start with key character number one, the woman. So we saw chapter 11. I read verses 15 and 16. The the trumpets sounding, excitement in heaven, jump down to verse 19. That's the last verse right before where we are tonight. And the temple of God which is in heaven, was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. I mean, what a scene in heaven as the result of the seventh trumpet sounding. But immediately after that, John is confronted with something new. Verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven talk about that word sign, this is the Apostle John writing. We've been studying the gospel of John on Sunday morning. In our study of the gospel of John, we have seen John use this term. In fact, the term sign is a frequent word there. The signs that Jesus performed. And it's a word that's used to refer to some sort of miraculous sign that has a deeper spiritual significance. That's the word he's using here. I'll just remind you of that in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, verse 11. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee at that wedding, that was the first one, and manifested his his glory and his disciples believed in him. That was the purpose of the signs, to manifest something about Jesus, his character, his mission, and so forth. I should even make a side note about hermeneutics. That's how we interpret Scripture. We do We do adhere to the literal, grammatical, historical approach to interpreting the Bible. And we use that same hermeneutic throughout Scripture, including the book of Revelation. We don't change our hermeneutic. Some groups do. It's the hermeneutic that allows us to find out what the original author meant when he wrote it. We want to know that. And that means we must look for the literal way he used the original language, and we consider the historical context as well. But the literal approach does not not rule out the normal use of symbolic language. That's part of the literal approach to scripture. The writers would use symbolism. So if the author meant to use symbolic language, like a metaphor and an illustration, we recognize that but we also then look for what literal reality that it points to. And such is the case with signs in the Bible. A sign is a symbol, but it points to a spiritual reality. Just so you'll know, in Revelation, we find seven signs. Three are associated with heaven, and four are associated with earth. This is the first one right here in our verse. Three in heaven, Chapter 12, verse 1, you'll see the word again. If you look down to verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. If you look over chapter 15, verse 1, you'll find another sign associated with heaven. But there are four associated with earth. There are two of them in chapter 13, one in chapter 16, and one in chapter 19. What's interesting about this one in our verse, it's the only sign out of those seven in which we find no reference to judgment of any kind or evil, just this one sign. In any case, notice more specifically what John says. The sign in our verse is called a great sign. That's the Greek term mega or megas. We understand that. We use that term even in English sometimes. And you find that term mega in chapter 12 several times. It's in chapter 3 again. Excuse me, verse 3 again, chapter 12. It's in verse 9 again. It's in verse 12 again. It's in verse 14 again. That's indicating that Everything John is seeing is mega here. I mean, everything seemed to be huge in size or everything was significant, very significant, large in its significance. Such is the case in our verse. This sign was something remarkable, something very significant. And John saw that this remarkable sign appeared in heaven. That's the location where this part of the vision is taking place. Remember, look back at verse 15 that I read earlier chapter 11 and then verse 19 all the excitement and the stormy scene in heaven we'll see later on this chapter that heaven is the place from where the dragon was expelled cast out but even though he sees this great sign in heaven he finds out that it's portraying something that's going to happen on earth the great sign consists of a woman so the obvious question is, who is this woman? I've told you the right answer. Here are some wrong interpretations that have been put forth. There are those, first of all, who have tried to identify this woman as Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Virgin Mary. And that approach, that wrong approach, rests on the use of somewhat sim- uh, similar terminology that we're going to read here in verse 2. Similar to the terminology in Matthew to describe Mary when she was pregnant. I'll just remind you of Matthew 1, verse 18. And we're familiar with this the Christmas story, the angel dealing with Joseph there and all that. But in Matthew 1, verse 18, it says, Before they came together, she, Mary, was found to be with child. Well, that's in our verse with child. And so some people holding this view then point out that, well, this this, this is Mary because of that same phrase here. That uh, view also looks at some similar language in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7. Let me read Isaiah 7, 10 through 14, just for a moment, some excerpts. This is a prophecy. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. So again, some look at that and go, this, this is a sign and this woman's with child. So we believe it's the Virgin Mary. The It's an a lot of obstacles to this view view the primary obstacle being that this is a sign in John's writing mean it's a symbol it's not a literal woman no matter whose name you want to put on it not an actual woman she symbolizes an entity or a group that's how John uses the term sign and it's impossible for it to be a single individual if you look at verse 17 look ahead in our chapter verse 17 And it says that, um, has this phrase in there, the rest of her children or the rest of her offspring. In other words, we're going to see that the dragon is persecuting this group of, of offspring. So this persecution is aimed at more than just a child of a particular woman, a mother. It's aimed at a large group. Second, there's another wrong interpretation that comes from those who try to identify this as God. And that honestly doesn't make any sense at all. We're going to see that this woman produces a a male child, and that's Jesus, God in human flesh. And we're going to see that the woman talks about the woman fleeing into the wilderness from the dragon. God doesn't flee from the dragon. Third, a wrong interpretation comes from those who say the woman's identified with all the people of God, just all the people of God, both in the Old and New Testaments. The woman can't be all the people of God because verse 17 says the rest of her seed, the rest of her offspring. There are offspring that are in addition to her. Not everyone is included in her, not both Old Testament and New Testament. And when you get to the New Testament people of God, there's other language about them. That's the Christian community. That's the church. The church cannot be the mother of the male child, Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. The Messiah is a child of the Jewish community alone, not all the people of God. Paul states that. Other writers state it in Galatians 4 verse 4. Jesus was born under the law, under the Mosaic Covenant, The New Testament is not, the church is not termed that way. The New Testament is not the mother of the male child. The New Testament pictures the church as the bride of this male child. So many verses of that. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. In other words, you, the Christians, I'm presenting you to Christ as, as his bride. Husbands are to love their wives, the way Christ loves the church, Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, it's a mystery. I'm speaking there about that. Christ gave himself up for her, the church. I'm talking about the reference of Christ in the church. He gave himself up for his bride. And we'll see it again in chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 9. It says, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, none of those interpretations hold up to the evaluation of the grammar. They don't hold up to the evaluation of the Scriptures, of our theology and Scripture. So the question remains, who is she? Let's see see how she appeared. Verse 1, it says, she was clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. That's very important language to her identity. Why is she seen this way? Because her appearance is connected to an important Old Testament passage. You should turn to this one, Genesis 37, verses 9 to 11. Genesis 37. We were making such good, fast progress in Revelation until I got to this part, and now I'm slowing you down quite a bit. We're going to look at two verses tonight of Revelation 12. So Genesis 37, 9 to 11, this passage is the background for this verse we just read about the woman. And so it helps us interpret the symbolism properly. This passage is the account of Joseph's dream. Joseph was a dreamer. Remember, he had a dream, and he did something that maybe some people would say he shouldn't have done, but he told his family about his dream. 37 verse 9, Now, he had still another dream, and he related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I've had still another dream. And they go, Oh, boy, here we go again. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, his father, Jacob, was listening in on this. And when Jacob heard this, he understood the symbolism of this verse, and he did not like it. Look at verses 10 and 11. He went and told his father, related to his father, that's how he heard it, and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. In other words, Jacob understood that in this dream, the sun and the moon represented him and his wife, April, uh, Rachel, not April. There were not no women in the Bible named April <laughs> that I know of. I don't think. I'm trying to think just for a moment. The sun represents Jacob and the moon represents Rachel. He got that. He also got that the, 12, that the stars, there's actually 12 of them. Remember, there's 11 brothers, but Joseph is number 12. They're all stars. That represents the 12 sons of Jacob. And we know them as the, as the Old Testament patriarchs. So back to Revelation, here in verse 1, the fact that the woman in this vision was clothed with the sun is indicating there is a direct connection to Jacob, and the patriarchs, and therefore a direct connection to the covenant that God made with Abraham that Jacob inherited, by which God formed a new nation, right? And that nation eventually is called the nation of Israel. You remember the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, verses 1 and following, the Lord spoke to Abram. He was a pagan God crashed into his life and said in verse 2 I'm going to make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great. Isaac was then in, inherited that and then Jacob So you see other verses refer to Israel that way, this nation that belonged to God. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the nation of Israel, the national nation of Israel. National Jews. Psalm 33, verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's actually talking about Israel. Israel. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Back to our text. that is who the woman symbolizes, Israel. She's clothed with the son. With the son. That's the connection to the Abrahamic covenant because of Jacob. And even the idea of the son is, is something that's picturing and symbolizing glory and dignity. That's the unique glory and dignity of the nation of Israel because of her exalted status as God's chosen nation. And the verse says, the moon was under his feet, under her feet. Again, remember back to that Genesis passage, the moon refers to Rachel, Jacob's wife, the mother of Joseph. This moon language is another connection then to the chosen nation. In fact, what's interesting about The symbolism of moon is how the moon was even connected to the worship of the nation of Israel. There were feasts connected with the new moon. You find that mentioned many times. Numbers 29 talks about the burnt offering of the new moon. Nehemiah 10, the Sabbath, the new moon, and the appointed times. Psalm 81 verse 3, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. In Isaiah chapter 1, God is condemning the nation because of their sin, saying in verse 14, I hate your new moon festivals because you you come with impure hearts to me. They become a burden to me. The point is the moon clothing is connected in more than one way to Israel, confirming that is the identity of the woman. It's not all the people of God, the Old Testament nation of Israel and the New Testament church. No, it's just Israel not the virgin mary. And there's more that connects, the crown of 12 stars, a clear reference to Israel as well, the 12 tribes of Israel. And John recognized this as he writes that this woman is the ongoing fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Therefore, the details of the woman's appearance clinch her identification here as national Israel. We'll jump to something else real quick. Look at verse 2. We're going to spend a little bit more time in verse 2 in a moment, a little bit. But it confirms the strength of this right interpretation because you have this picture of a woman, not just a woman, but a woman travailing in labor. Now, I'll come back to that verse in a moment, Something, a lot that's said there, but listen to, just listen to some of the Old Testament passages that refer to the nation of Israel that way. She's like a travailing woman. In labor, Isaiah 26, 17 and 18, as the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she, Israel, writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus, thus we are before you, Lord, as a nation. We were pregnant. We're writhing in labor, travailing. Isaiah 66, verse 7, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain, she gave birth to a boy Prophecy there, Jeremiah 4.31, I heard a cry as a woman in labor, the anguish of one giving birth to her first child. Who? The cry of the daughter of Zion. Micah 4.10, writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion. You get the picture. All those Old Testament passages and more present the nation of Israel that way, not just as a woman, but as a woman in labor, By the way, this is not the only way the woman imagery is used of of Israel, right? This is a side point, but she's compared to another woman sometimes in the Old Testament, an unfaithful woman, because of her rebellion against God, the adulterous wife of the Lord. Jeremiah 3 verse 20, Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel. Ezekiel 16, You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband verse 34, no one plays the harlot as you do. It's just saying it's not unusual for the nation of Israel to be called a woman. So here she is, not an actual woman, but a symbolic mother who represents national Israel. We shouldn't be surprised that Israel is playing such a significant role in the end times, the future tribulation. The 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, the tribulation, well, primarily concern Israel. Just as the first 69 weeks did. Go back to Daniel nine real quick. Turn to that. Daniel 9:24 to27. Daniel 9:24 to27. You there? Good. Daniel 9:24. Listen to all the references to Israel. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city, to finish the transgression. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince. Messiah is the one that's coming back at the end of the tribulation. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And remember, the weeks represent years. It will be built again, or groups of years, rather, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, crucified. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will become a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. This is talking about the middle of the tribulation, still connecting to something related to Israel, that's language about Israel's worship, sacrifice, and grain offering. Israel's presence in the end times is consistent with the prophecy from Daniel, and it's consistent with God's promises to Israel as of continued existence as a nation. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 35 and 36. Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars by light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it, its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. In other words, the point there is the Lord is controlling, has fixed the day, the sun, the moon, the stars. He's fixed all that. So he says, if this fixed order departs from me, which it can't, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. If I can stop, if I stop controlling the fixed things of the universe, then yes, you can say that'll no longer be a nation to me and no longer have a future. And the point is that's not going to happen. Total rejection of Israel does not happen. I could read others, but we're out of time. Jeremiah 46, Daniel 2, Amos 9, verse 8 says, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. And there are promises even of of national salvation. Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out my spirit on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace, and they'll look on me whom they have pierced. They'll understand. Of course, the most significant in the New Testament is Paul's prophecy of Romans 11, verse 26. So all Israel will be saved, all living at a certain time, enough of them that it's as if we could say it's the whole nation. There's coming a time in the future, at the end of a tribulation, such a large number of Israel will finally reap some of the promises they've been waiting for. And it says this, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. My point is, it makes sense that Israel is prominent during the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, because it's in keeping with, in mind with God's promises to her as a kingdom. So back to everything I said about Satan tonight. All throughout their history, Satan has been attacking and persecuting the Jewish people. Often as part of God's judgment upon them, even as an instrument of God's judgment why has Satan opposed Israel throughout the centuries? Because he knows to destroy Israel would make it impossible for God to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people. And God is not going to allow him to do that. Not totally. He uses Satan to chasten Israel and we know the story. Satan actually knows the story as well that he's doomed. The devil, knowing that, is going to intensify what he's been doing for centuries against Israel. He's going to intensify that on steroids during the tribulation, persecuting Israel, because the establishment of the millennial kingdom is going to be drawing near. And that fits with what was said about the sounding of the seventh trumpet we're talking about what's happening a few months, maybe at most, right before the return of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. Interesting statement of, in our chapter. Revelation 12, verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Again, what he's been doing through the centuries to stop the progress of God's redemptive plan as it unfolds through the nation of Israel and the coming of the Messiah, the male child that's from the nation of Israel. He has only a short time. No wonder there is such terrible things from the Satan during this time, and no wonder it demands such wrath being poured out by God on all those who have rebelled against him. So back in verse 2 for a minute, she's with child. That is the familiar Old Testament imagery describing Israel. Israel has been this woman feeling the pain all those centuries, the pain longing for Messiah to come forth, feeling the pains of childbirth in preparation for the first coming of Christ. And the cause of a lot of that pain has been the persecution of Satan who has repeatedly attempted to destroy the mother, the woman, all on the way. So just as the nation was in pain when the Messiah came the first time, it's going to be in pain as his second coming draws near. Satan's role of hating God's people and persecuting God's people That was prophesied by God himself in Genesis 3.15. We've talked about that before, the proto-evangelion, the first articulation of the gospel in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. When the curses are being pronounced on Adam and Eve and Satan, God says this to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed is singular, the Messiah. there's going to be enmity. And the end of the verse says, you'll bruise him on the heel. I mean, he has been bruising Christ in the sense of persecuting the woman, Israel, all through these centuries, but it's just bruising on the heel. The prophecy is, but he, this male child, this seed, is going to bruise you on the head. That's going to happen at the end of the tribulation. So ever since that promise in Genesis 3.15, Satan has gone about attacking this woman. So Israel has agonized and suffered. You could make the case that no nation in history has suffered as long and as severely as Israel has, both from God's chastening, but also from Satan's repeated furious efforts to destroy the nation from whom the Messiah would come. I mean, he had tried more than once to keep the birth from even happening. That's the pain, the pain of the birth Israel was waiting for, the begetting of the male child. Now, John is writing after all he already came, right? It's a historical event that the male child came from this woman. So this is a heavenly reenactment of that past historical event. Well, we'll stop there. There's more to say now about the third character. There's the woman, there's the male child, and now a dragon. You know, I think the main thing to call attention to as we close tonight, at least this was for me as I just researched, remind myself of the history of all this and and what's the underlying background of what these two verses are about and why John Spirit had John pause in this long interlude to set the stage for some things that are calm to remind us that this this war has been going on for a long time. But here's the main thing to call attention to, and that is the amazing cohesiveness of Scripture. That was my big takeaway. From beginning to end, the storyline is consistent. I've read some of the Quran. I guarantee you it's not like that. You could never exegete a literal, grammatical approach to the Quran like we do Scripture. But there is this storyline that is consistent, and that's an amazing fact about the Bible, a fact, one of the many that confirms its inspiration. It's all progressing to this. That's why the book of Revelation is so important. It's the record of the consummation of the end. Without it, this cohesive storyline is left undone. You've heard this before. This is one way to outline the entire Bible. You can outline the, the entire Bible with these four points. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Don't forget that. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation a cohesive storyline that ties it all together. And now we're looking at the consummation in this book. So let's, not, let's seek to understand it as much of the details as we possibly can. It's important, even if it's necessary to dig through the details sometimes like this, keep in mind something as we dig through some of these things. It'll slow down, it'll speed up our study. Just keep in mind Revelation 1 verse 3. Remember the promise? Revelation 1.3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Our church will be blessed. You'll be blessed because we're studying Revelation here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this historical glimpse, the background that is tedious in some way, but yet so necessary to see who these characters are that play such an important role in the end times. We stand back in amazement at your redemptive plan that formed in your own eternal mind that you would call this man Abram to yourself and change his name to Abraham and create a nation, a national group of people. Not that that every person, individual was saved. There was a remnant always within the nation of true Israel, as Scripture calls them, but national Israel was always part of your purpose and still is. You are not done, according to your word, with Israel. So, Lord, we pray that as we study the consummation of all things, that we will be amazed at the perfection of Scripture, at the cohesiveness and the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, how it all ties together consistently. So, Lord, we don't know the timing of the end, and so many try to predict dates, and and pretty much any time dates are thrown out, we need to ignore it. You know your timetable. But we know these last seven years that we're studying, those seven years are going to come at some point. So, Lord, help us to use the time we have now. You've given us to live today as your followers of your son. You've given our church things to do today to serve you and to proclaim truth. So let us be diligent about that even as we enjoy the blessing of looking at the consummation. In Christ's name, amen.